Welcome to frame rate. That's the sound you hear. That's the sound of a frame rate incoming. And uh, we guess what? Guess what? I'm Abe Epperson. I'm one of your co-hosts today, and I'm uh, get to share the mic with uh, my other co-host. Introduce yourself, Michael Swaim, and we rate frame. Yeah, we're big uh, frame raters. And uh, guess what? We're talking about. This is gonna be like a more uh, philosophical discussion. Uh, if you recognize shot. the name, uh-huh. yeah. If you recognize the name and or the movie, uh, you know what's coming. Uh, we have a guest that we always uh, bring in specifically for the Charlie Kaufmans. Introduce yourself, guest. Hello, my name is uh, Brooks Brown. I make video games for a living, and I teach people about Deleuze for a hobby. And you're our ad hoc we, kind yeah, of we think of you Kaufman. As, you're our demolitions expert for Kaufman. We just are like, oh, okay, well, Brooks, obviously, if it's Kaufman a, yeah. comes around the Rolodex. We had such a good time the first time. We just like made it a thing. Let's bring it around again. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a thing. Honestly, given the the circles of people you walk in, I'm incredibly happy to be able to say that I'm the Kaufman person. <laughs> the co- you're our go-to Kaufman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Fascinating. Uh, so yeah, you read it. We're talking about adaptation today, uh, and uh, yeah, how we usually the way we jump right into these things, and I feel like in the interest of just doing it, we should. Uh, let's get past the phase where we usually ask the guests to give like a short description of the movie. Now it's always laughable when this comes up with these particular episodes because there's not always an easy summation of the events of the film. John Malkovich everything is, is contextual, and even it is pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you can do your best, just kind of like announce what an adaptation is about just for the sake of listeners who are, want to just follow along with the conversation. I, I, I want to be a dick and just say, well, it's about flowers. Right, and then it's just, just kind a of story stop. about flowers, man. Yeah, um, what do you, what do you think? So, uh, adaptation is the story of Charlie Kaufman taking on the work and doing the adaptation of a book called The Orchid Thief. Uh, There's a real story that happened. He got asked to do The Orchid Thief, and uh, as he was trying to figure out how to turn this into actually a movie, he could not get past himself in order to do this, and. Uh, spent a great deal of time battling himself on what it meant to actually do an adaptation, how he would tell his story, where his voice is, what the meaning of the thing is. And Adaptation is a film about the making of the script for the film Adaptation. Absolutely. Well it is. Yeah. It is both literally an adaptation, but also a work about what it is to adapt something. And the trifecta that blows me away it's all its resonant theme is also adaptation as in evolutionary adaptations. <laughs> it was fucking, uh, cough, man. Anyway. And, yeah, uh, he had to adapt. Yeah. Reminiscent. Of, ooh, we're going to talk ooh, about the ooh, themes. I disagree. Reminiscent of the story. I behind, also disagree. We'll get into uh, it in one second. This is going to be good. But I just wanted to say the trivia that, or at least it resonates with the story behind Synecdoche, which again, you would not really, I don't think upon viewing that you'd go, oh, it's a horror movie. But he was asked to write a horror movie and he sat mm. down and thought, well, what's horrifying to me? And he came up with Synecdoche, New York. So right. this is the kid in class who takes the prompt and doesn't do Trolls the prompt it. the way you intended. Yeah. yeah, he loves to subvert the prompt and do give you something else that's still brilliant. Well, I, I uh, would say specifically, yeah. though, this is to me. Uh, and if you look through his entire revoir, 
this is the turning point of Kaufman learning to become Kaufman. To me. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Now, do you want to, should we start by digging into that or digging into you disagreeing Hmm. about evolution? Name a a point. This is not going to be an (laughs) easy discussion. I want to, I want to lead, I want to kind of go through it a little bit chronologically, not like through the story, but like I, my adaptation deal is with like the main story arc. Cause there's a lot of like, it's Kaufman. So there's a few things that are just for everybody that are just on the table. One, since it's a Charlie Kaufman script, it's about crippling insecurity, and anxiety. Um, <laughs> there's a few things that kind of, uh, like are going on under the surface of the actual events of the screenplay. And then there's the events of the screenplay. And then there's the meta narrative. Like we have so many different layerings that we can talk about the symbolism all day. And maybe we should a little bit, but when we talk about the overarching story of like what happens to the character, Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman, his, you know, fictional twin brother, um, and I think that kind of leads into adaptation. That will be more of like, what does the story mean? Which I think we should save till the end. Um, so I think uh, let's talk about this intro, right? I want to ask you guys a same like a question. There's the introduction where we jump to specifically the part where we jump to 40 billion and 40 years ago and the beginning of Hollywood. And um, he kind of has this uh framing device throughout that is basically saying like there's this uh adap- there's this whole like cosmic arc that's happening simultaneously to our protagonist story right um it's talking about something larger i want to tell me your guys' thoughts about what do you think that's about and why do you think he included it in the screenplay so for me the the entire cosmic arc and and specifically you know, you're referencing uh, well, it's throughout, but that sort of blend like that the they Charles do. Darwin stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the push for me, um, and it's a thing that specifically in his usage of the orchid and the bee that becomes kind of this running theme is this idea of um, this element happens and, and so we need to create meaning for it. We need to define why a thing is the way it is. And to do so, we tend to make things very determinate here is how things are here is how things work here is how things need to be mm-hmm. this does that this does that you because found. of that these because are of that this way and yeah. as such when what he's doing is to me saying uh in that case then where the story starts billions of years ago there was the big bang because that's literally how every, every story, story starts, starts that way, there and every story ends with eventually mm-hmm. they died like <laughs> sorry <clears throat> to me no, it's the idea that it. All art is connected to all art is connected to everything. So when he's sitting down to try and do, because his stated goal in the movie is to write something true and vibrant that's quote unquote like real art. Mm. And uh, that is literally an impossible task because what what you kind of mean when you say that is you're sitting down to write something that encompasses the totality of meaning. Right. Which either doesn't exist or is incomprehensibly large depending on your school of thought. So it's like, mm-hmm. well, if you start from the position he does do specifically yeah. the position he starts from, and he says it very early on. Um, and it, it, I don't have an, or, I don't have an uh, original thought in my head is I think mm-hmm. the exact phrase. And he continues to run with this, this idea that again, uh, 
and he when he critiques his brother, we'll get into all of these things, but he continually comes back to how do you ground it? How do you make this thing work? His He's like yelling at everyone that these things have to make sense. There has to be growth, mm-hmm. but it has to be like real life. What's the drive behind real life? And the shift that starts to happen for him is as he starts to find his own way to disconnect from that story. The The idea of original thought, I'm going to it's impossible not to just dive directly into the philosophy of things, but we're talking about kind of um, if you believe that there is a determinate nature to original thought, that I have a series of thoughts in my head and eventually something's going to collide in a unique way that comes out, but it's fairly determinate, which is, again, the Darwin metaphor. Uh, Darwin believed that orchids very specifically, and orchids are the center of this, um, formed as they do in order to attract bees. That's silly. Orchids don't have intelligence behind them. There's no reason that it happened, but there's these elements that sort of collectively come and emergent moments happen out of that. That's actually what we've now know more evolution comes out of. Charles Darwin's view of orchids is that determinate. The film is about Charlie learning the the shift himself as he moves from the Darwinesque sort of setup to being something that is a lot more emergent, secondary, and uh, and and touches itself in its own way. What do you what do you mean by that? Like he he gets out of dark. Like I don't understand the dichotomy. You're well, Cooper up there. says some. I mean, this is probably my favorite line in the movie. And what I think is great about the film is, despite all this abstract metadata bullshit, we can and will do, where you parse it on a structural level and all the nested mm-hmm. layers. It's still a magnificent piece of writing, meaning you can still find yes. lines where you're like, that line sings on its own without all the meta bullshit attached to it. That is just a true truism written well. And I think one of the best ones in the movie is Chris Cooper saying that of bees and orchids, by simply doing what they're designed to do, something beautiful and magnificent happens. Right. He's talking about how all life on Earth is dependent on pollinating plants, mm-hmm. and therefore, and the bees don't know that. Those are t- mm-hmm. key because obviously we're the bee, right? Humanity's the bee. And yeah. it's the only viable argument for the fact that life has any meaning. Like if you're lost in an existential swamp of life is meaningless, one of the only arguments that could reassure you that life does have meaning is, look at bees and orchids, man. They don't ever comprehend their meaning, and yet they're part of something beautiful and magnificent. Maybe you are too. There's nothing saying you aren't. Like you can mm-hmm. comfort yourself with that. That's a real thing. And I think that, and I think that well, that kind of emergent magnificence is different than saying orchids have a collective intelligence and decide to try to look like bees so they can capture bees mm-hmm, interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you think that Charlie, either of you guys think that Charlie Kaufman, well, I don't want to go to the, well, like scientists often say today, natural is. selection has no goal. It is an important credo these days that Darwin didn't necessarily understand fully. The other important part here is the line when he's talking to his agent, because I think that there's, there's actually a before (laughs) the movie. What, I fucked her in the ass? No, no. When, when there's actually a before the story in this film, because before the story is the things happening around it, the, the nature of being John Malkovich, having come out, having been the hit that it was here I am with that same director. Like these are the things that happen in this movie, but it's also the color of the film existing. Um, and now it's expected that Charlie Kaufman does a Charlie Kaufman movie. And mm-hmm. that's now defined yes. by being John Malkovich. And as such, he is now aiming at trying to find his flower. That's that's what I'm that's the 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 thing I think that is the shift for me 
is he starts he stops moving and trying to find his flower sure. just like the woman uh Susan trying uh, Susan's yeah. trying to find her, the flower the ghost flower this obsession for that yeah. specific thing but ultimately in this script we see Charlie actually realize and this is again just to read a section from uh the actual orchid thief book because it's one of the amazing mm-hmm. parts is this is actually intended to be an adaptation of the story we see inside of it and the woman yeah. who wrote the original uh, piece just for just let me pause you just for a second. I just want to give context for people who are uh, not as in the weeds as we are. So, yeah, we did talk about Susan Orlean making a uh, writing a book, uh, The Orchid Thief. What that is, mm-hmm. it has is a uh, in like an, she's like an investigative journalist. And she found out about this guy who is played by Chris Cooper in the film, um, John LaRoche. Uh, having essentially this obsession with the ghost orchid, which is once again represented in the movie. Um, And she just kind of talks about how interviewing and talking to him. uh, uh, Yeah. There's just as there just a summary of it is just like her, uh, like a, one of those kind of tell all books where it's just like, I deep dived here. And he also, let me give you some facts. They also use lines in the movie adaptation directly from Susan Erlene's book Mm -hmm. when they're quoting the book. So it's all very like, it isn't invented in the Hollywood sense of that, uh, which is a usual distinction we don't have to make because almost everything in Hollywood is invented. But I think what you're talking about here is that Susan Erlene's obsession with the ghost orchid in this film mimics Kaufman or the character of Kaufman's obsession with crafting a self, the self-reflexive film. Like they both fall in love with the symbol of it in the case of yes. the story within the story, Susan Orlean with LaRoche and Kaufman with Susan Orlean. And then they're disappointed with both the orchid LaRoche Susan adaptation. These are the four kind of levels of like someone who's looking at something that is seemingly unattainable is restricted has a conflict and this is just basic narrative storytelling stuff my character cannot get there for some reason in the case of you know charlie kaufman it's anxiety in the case of susan orlean it's like fear for being found out um but for many for many reasons they don't uh go after the thing uh that they truly want until they do and when they do they're disappointed but then they walk away from that story with the results so yeah continue i want you to read from it but i just wanted to point out the fact that susan orlean also uh was totally against it because when she was read when she was when she was told about it and she actually read oh she was uh, horrified the screenplay it should be pointed out and she's talked about explicitly because i don't yeah so there's a point in the film at which we haven't said this. Uh, Susan Orlean, as played by Meryl Streep, falls in love with LaRoche, starts having an affair with him, starts chopping up the ghost orchids and snorting them as a drug and like tries to have Charlie Kaufman murdered. So yeah. and does kill record, his brother. Does kill his that brother. That is not that what happened happen. in the book <laughs> yeah. The Orchid Thief, no, nor in real life. There's a, yeah. So that's Charlie the Kaufman, audacity of the adaptation. Is yeah, that Charlie Kaufman yeah. is essentially saying, I'm going to write a character of you like I write a character of myself because I'm doing that with everyone. Just display on the page, like, essentially, I am a person who did these things, even though we all know you didn't. Because right. obviously you as a viewer are not going to be able to decipher the difference between wait, is this really what the Orchid Thief is about? Is he just ad- adapting it normally or not? That's what Kaufman yeah. wants and to do. And to make about. it one layer more complex, it becomes apparent, I think, as you as it unfolds, that Nick Cage, who plays Charlie Kaufman, 
has a twin brother, Donald, who sort of represents himself, a part of himself, mm-hmm. if he were positive, as positive and optimistic as he is anxious and insecure. And mm-hmm. the uh, just the ways in which they fold into each other makes it pretty clear by the end, I would argue, that Donald at some point either profoundly influenced Charlie Kaufman or starts literally takes over writing the movie that you're watching because right. we'll get into the that. first half of the movie feels very Charlie. And the second half feels very Donald, feels very yep. Donald. Yeah, and we'll explain great. what that means. But I think enough context is set up just for the meta aspect, because I know that that's hard to translate. Yeah, on yeah, a podcast. Yeah. Brooks I feel like quote. we've done that. I want to snap back to Brooks and quote the segment segment you're talking about in a you know, talk to us what you want to talk about that aspect. Orchids have multiplied and diversified and become the biggest flowering plant family on earth because each orchid species has made itself irresistible. Many species look so much like their favorite insects that the insect mistakes them for kin, and when it lands on the flower to visit, pollen sticks to its body. When the insect repeats the mistake on another orchid, the pollen from the first flower gets deposited on the stigma of the second. In other words, the orchid gets fertilized because it's smarter than the bug. Another orchid species mm-hmm. imitates the shape of something that a pollinating insect likes to kill. Botanists call this pseudo-antagonism. Other species look like the mate of their pollinator, so the bug tries to mate with one orchid and then another, pseudo-copulation, and spreads pollen from flower to flower each hopeless time. No one knows whether orchids evolved to complement insects, or whether the orchids evolved first, or whether somehow... These two life forms evolved simultaneously, which might explain how two totally different living things came to depend on each other. The specific excerpt that I think mm. is really important because, yeah. to your point, she was horrified. Yeah. This woman was horrified the first time she read this script. Which, well, just again, to contrast, here's a line from Charlie from what he wrote about yeah. the same topic. I know what you're going to use. Fuck you, uh, lady. You're just yeah. a lonely, old, desperate, <laughs> pathetic drug addict. Yep, yep. I knew you were going to go to that interaction. And that's him that describing Susan Orlean. Yes. Uh, I, I thought you were going to go with maybe her. Just, I just want to be a baby. <laughs> I just want to be a baby again, yeah. But but yeah. but she says now, um, and it's, mm-hmm. again, to go back to the idea of what is an adaptation. The real Susan Orlean. The real mean, Susan Orlean now says. It says now, um, yeah. That it actually is about the same thing, that it's actually the real meaning mm-hmm. of the book. She did. She said, yeah, there's a quote that she has that it's like basically like I, w- I went to Charlie Kaufman and was like, how did you know that you were seeing these things? Because I had like a divorce at the time and there's an interview where she ta- kind of talks about it. Like, obviously, it's exaggerated. And I think it's that he- my belief is that Charlie Kaufman is just could read between the lines of like the way that she talks about LaRoche in the book. It's like you could conceive of a version where she just like fell in love with it. She falls but she's in love talking with about his passion. obsession. But it's specifically yeah. she loves LaRoche's ability yeah, it's to a see life passion. as yeah. meaningful, to yeah, have exactly. passion, to think something matters. Yep. Yeah. And so Charlie Kaufman's like, that is beautiful. Maybe she's in love with that guy because that guy's mm-hmm. got a perspective. And so he just wrote it in that way. And uh, Susan Orlean basically was horrified, almost shut the movie down because they had to get her say so. Remember, this all started as a, oh, for about five or six years, this uh, this concept for a script had been uh, thrown around. Not the Kaufman uh, treatment, but rather no, just, just the, the idea story of LaRoche using adapting. legal loopholes to steal orchids. Yeah. yeah. 
And so when it so Susan Orlean did not expect this. She expected like, oh, they're going to dra- dramatize my story. Um, oh, I can't even imagine so when Can, Kaufman, I, she reads it. And the, one of the first things he says as a critique, Charlie in the movie written by Charlie outside of the movie mm-hmm. calls her writing New Yorker shit, which is mm-hmm. completely accurate. Her 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 meandering prose is really difficult to follow. It's that classic New Yorker thing. And I'm not a big fan of it myself. Like the fact that he's critical of the book during the adaptation yeah. of the book is like, I can't imagine how well she... in the screenplay, he's sitting there profusely sweating, hoping he'll get the job of adapting the screenplay that you're reading. It's so, oh, and those yeah. scenes Charlie are great. Tilda, Tilda Swinton <laughs> as that, as that agent sort of playing mm-hmm. the role in between who says to both of them, mm-hmm. it's, Welcome to Hollywood. Word like for the, word. The yeah. critiques of Hollywood. You're such a unique you, voice. You have such a Everything unique voice. Everything is by cliche. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and ultimately she said yes because she, as she quotes, or as she, uh, like paraphrasing, she was like, uh, then I was told everybody in the uh, movie is a real person. Uh, down to Brian Cox character, uh, Robert McKee, who's the screenwriter, like lecturer, screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, like everybody's playing themselves. Obviously, the writer wrote themselves into the uh, thing. And she said that emboldened her to accept the job. I think also when you're told like, because at this point they're like saying like Meryl Streep's going to play you. Um, and trust so us, we read screenplays of, and this is brilliant. Yeah. I'm sure people and were saying. And she yeah. read it, so she knows what he's going for. Yeah. You know, I don't think she's oblivious to it. But it's not at all what was sought out to do with the project from Jump, which I think is more to the Kaufman point of adaptation. My question to you guys is I kind of do want, I do want to talk about a lot of the specifics, but I want to get one big thing out of the way that's like been bothering me. And I just want to feel, I want you guys to weigh in on it. And like my basic question is simple is like, what is he saying here with the actual like story? Like when you just say like, follow the uh, Charlie Kaufman tale. Not like not taking out the meta stuff, but I'm just saying like the fact that his brother dies, you know, like where he is at the beginning of script versus where he is at the end. Uh, What do you think Charlie Kaufman, the actual writer, is uh, like saying about the idea of struggling to find a new way to tell things uh, that his that he himself and the character both like kind of strive for. Should Charlie Kaufman continue at the end of the film uh, to like investigate the mind in the way that he does? Is he writing? Or for the example, great he says, "American." I like this ending. Screenplay. It feels right. I like this. This is yeah. good. Is he right? Is that that true? Is he right? Yeah. <laughs> does he adapt? Does he change? And yeah. do you think that that's honest? Like I have yeah. a clear answer, but I think the guest should probably go first. I so. To me, I, I would go with, uh, I think it was Michael, you said earlier that this is, the first half is kind of written by Charlie, the second half is written by Donald. Um, I tend to go that way. There's a very clear moment in the film where it's clear Donald's now in the driver's seat uh, in multiple mm-hmm. ways and is mm-hmm. is the one who's in control of the movement of the plot forward, whereas Charlie was never really in control, but at least he was the focus. Um, as yeah. As this happens, what we see is we see all of the things that one Donald likes, but also are intended to happen. Uh, he goes to the the seminar, and the things said in the seminar are the Ten Commandments of uh, what's his mm. name, um, uh, McKenna McKee. Um, McKee's McKee. Um, McKee. The Ten Commandments Who, of McKee's a real sort of story all tend to happen within this section, and they happen in what I would say is like the hackiest, shittiest way it could happen. 
And they were oh. foreshadowed by Charlie in the first act saying, I don't want to screen. I don't want to write a screenplay where they do drugs or someone gets shot. And like those things all then. But he lists all, yeah. all the cliches that he about he commits in the movie. Yeah, narration. they all happen because it's it's day sex mocking. So to be so it's it's a lot to say, but I would say the Charlie early on the first half is the story Charlie wants to write, which is just about kind of the mundanity mm -hmm. of the creative process and the difficulty from. I wish I had coffee. I'm sort of hungry and he's done writing for the day. Like it's, mm -hmm. I've been there. Uh, I think all of us have been there in one way. Like everyone who's creative, this is the process. But as soon as Donald's in, it's fire, it's going. And it's that exciting thing. The same way we saw sort of Donald on the computer versus the typewriter firing off fast and quick mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. all of that. And then it ends with Donald, Donald's death and specifically in a way that is a big, you're not allowed to do this. Specifically, McKee goes out of his way to talk about not doing a deus ex, deus ex machina sort of and thing. And then an mm. alligator comes. An and alligator saves eats them. Chris Cooper yeah. and saving him, yeah. And and it just so happens that this is where Donald died. Like, everything that happens is all deus ex machina, but it ends yeah. with a huge, I'm not doing this, this is not who I am. And... The thing that makes me think that's the case is because the first time we hear Donald talk Interesting. is he says the sentence, uh, Charlie, Charlie, is that you? And after Donald dies, the first thing we hear his mother say, Charlie, Charlie, is that you? When he calls her, mm. doesn't say, mm. hey, Donald, because <laughs> because mm -hmm. there isn't one. Uh, because they turn out to be the same person because that's literally the hackiest thing he could have written, which I think is something right. even Charlie makes fun of. And uh, literally earlier. Donald is writing a screenplay about multiple yeah. personality, which he says, you can't do that. So hacky. And he says, how would you even shoot it? And he goes, I don't know. Trick photography, which is the best line, which it's is literally what they're doing to Nick Cage to make this movie work. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Donald doesn't exist. It is fight club. I agree that Donald. Also, but I would say Donald life. not only doesn't exist, but Donald, Donald is, uh, is, is, is Gondry is, is all of these directors that he's worked with. I, I, mm. I think it's a very direct reference to these, these people and, and the Your setup partner that in the got. process. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, cause he's worked with, uh, he's worked with Gondry. I think he had just finished another film with Gondry that was mm. just horrifying. Uh, what was it and called? Spike and Jones Spike Jones. And Spike Jones. Yeah. Um, and these these we'll call pop directors he was not into a lot of that and it's very clear yeah. the way that they set up and how they marginalize him in the film uh, it's how we felt how he was marginalized in the in the previous mm -hmm. and but the guy who was cool who's did the makeup girl and all that there's no way mm -hmm. that's not a reference to uh previous directors that he's worked with or the current director like i i mm -hmm. see this as him saying I need to find my voice. Charlie, is that you at the beginning? But at the end, it's a question of, is that you? It's, it's him finding out who he is. That's, that's kind of the underlying sort of thread of this for me. And the death of Donald is him basically as a giant, like overall almost, fuck you, I'm doing the film you asked me to. Well, quite literally, because right. it yeah, opens with what's her that. name asking him, uh, you can have them fall in love. LaRoche and Susan, just make them fall in love. Add that stuff because it's not in the book. She says that Tilda Swinton's mm -hmm. character. So like, this is the movie you want. Fine. I'm giving you what you've asked for yeah. and shit it out. I'm, I'm thinking back. One of the things when I was thinking about this, Mike, is an old sketch you were in that Daniel O'Brien did about James Cameron's Spider-Man. 
Hmm. Um, God, there and, were so many sketches. But it, it's the one. It's it's the one about uh, James Cameron was paid to write a Spider-Man sketch, a Spider-Man movie, mm. and it's horrifying. And it's horrifying because they told him we need it tomorrow, and so he just kind of threw all the garbage in and just sent it off. And right. the ending of this is the Donald process for Charlie. It's where he gave up. It's where he did did that. He's like, fine. Here are the things you want. This is the stuff that sells. Here it is. And by the way, I'm going to end it by killing the person who wrote this and the Mm -hmm. person who's the driver, because I'm not doing this anymore. And I think if you look after this, I think it becomes a lot more clear that that's the case. Ah, that's interesting. I I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, because so if I were to ask you straight up, what do you think uh, Kaufman is saying about hope? Hope. At the end of the film, but not like what is he saying in terms of like the story? Like what does Charlie Kaufman believe about ending films with hope? Incidentally, I noticed this time that the restaurant I looked at the menu is called L.A. Pasta Place, which I really like the restaurant (laughs) they eat at. Charlie Kaufman's films always have, and especially the last series, uh, the most of them, have kind of a weird malaise hope. It's not the very hopeful, happy but instead, there's a possibility of finding ourselves that it, it's not even that we see him do such a thing or even that there's closure. It's that the, the hope continues to live on sort of unto itself rather than towards a singular goal or target. So that's so he's not saying anything about hope. No, not. No, no. This one just to saying me it exists. Hope. Yeah. But he specifically says at one point, like, I don't want to write a film like the character. I don't want to write a film about hope where someone ends like people at the end, like go on having learned things. And then he ends the film with him saying, like, my brother Donald, like, taught me this. And I now know how to write a better screenplay because of it. He ends by he ends by actually kissing the woman he's been dying to kiss and walking off. All the things. Yeah. All of his insecurities have been abetted. Well, and also even, I think, importantly, overcome a writing hurdle because uh, he realizes he's using way too much internal monologue and McKee would not approve and then he goes ah fuck it I like it who cares do you think the author is being genuine about that or he's just tying up loose ends because the story dictates that that's what you do as a good writer like is this a truly have a great slightly... American screenplay or is it not yeah oh well I do think it's one of the great American screenplays for but doesn't sure. that have to I have an answer to your original question yeah which so i think i look at it in a timeless sort of way i think both halves of the film are accurate because there's two points that really come to mind that i think trigger my this being my understanding of the film one is the thing that donald says when he's dying which was I loved Sarah Charles. That was mine, that love. I owned it. No one had the right to take it away, not even Sarah. And he says, but she thought you were pathetic. And he says, that's her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. So good. And a crystallization of what we already knew, because it's what Susan Orlean's been talking about, is you want to live a life with passion. You want to care about something, because by caring about something, it seems to give you meaning. You want to be the bee. Like you want to, you want to be LaRoche and uh, LaRoche goes through phases like fuck fish. But at the same time, everyone wants that. Uh, And we live in an increasingly sort of existential world. And I think the base thing about existentialism is not that everything is meaningless, but that things are inherently meaningless, meaning you must work to impart them with meaning to impart them in and of themselves. They have no meaning. Mm -hmm. And so 
But then I think it's very important that, or the other like twin moment that really gets me is McKee's speech because the movie so well up to the point where Charlie goes and visits the McKee story workshop has made me agree with Charlie, at least about a uh, mumble core stream of consciousness being more real. Like I am mm. agreeing with him that Donald's full of mm. shit. Cause he's presenting Donald as such a buffoon. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. I'm smart. Cause I'm watching adaptation, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Blockbuster movies are bullshit. I'm I'm like picking up what you're laying down, Charlie Kaufman. I'm riding your vibe. The first time I see this movie, because I don't know what I'm in for, I'm like, right. let's keep doing this mumblecore, insecure, anxiety-riddled thing. Let's go. Then halfway through the movie, he has a character who represents a real guy whose book is on my bookshelf, who writes basic shit about how to make it in Hollywood, like how to break in. Uh, like the Dan, you know, he's the earlier version of the Dan Harmon story right. circle. Younger people might know Dan Harmon's, but it's the same idea. <clears throat> Robert right. McKee's story. Uh, and he says, if you can't find meaning in life, there's something fucking wrong with you every day. Like right now, someone's murdering someone. Someone's falling in love, losing yeah. love, having unrequited love, saving a family member by sacrificing themselves. Like, I don't, if you talks. can't find meaning in life, why would I watch your fucking movie? Why would I give right. you two hours of my life to, to bum me out and say life has no meaning, you worthless piece of shit? Get out of the way. And yeah. he's also not wrong. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. And, and in that moment, I'm like, wow, shut my mouth and thereby Charlie's. And mm -hmm. I think what's important is that by the end, there's two things at the end. One is that, Donald sort of sacrifices himself in order to synthesize. Like he says, I learned this from my brother. So I think both are true. And I think Charlie Kaufman is also having his cake and eating it too, because he's proving he could do both. He's like, look, I could be Ingmar Bergman and write this really like grounded clerksian bullshit. I could also totally do the blockbuster version. And I'm not even saying one is better than the other. Uh, it's as simple as the final shot is filthy LA streets and then you pan down and there's flowers in the median growing mm -hmm. as if that's mm -hmm. beautiful. And if you think about it for a second, you're like, that's a pretty trite visual metaphor mm -hmm. or it's really profound. And the truth is it's both at the same time. It's whatever you want it to be. It is both trite and profound. It was profound the first time someone thought of it. So it's still profound now. It's just trite through exposure. Like everything, I just think the movie boils down to everything is what you make of it. And ultimately, mm -hmm. Charlie decides it's a time in his life. The time has come to make things meaningful. There are times in life where you make your you make everything around you meaningless and there's times where you bring the meaning back and that's a function of you not of the external circumstances i i can't help but see for me i cannot help but attach this to uh human nature which came out a year before directed by gondry produced by kaufman and jones and written Haven't by seen. kaufman yeah. you don't don't like if this should not be one we ever do on frame rate unless it's a roasting it's horrible it's it's not interesting. It insists upon itself, and it does literally Donald's thing. Like, I, it's why it's hard for me to divorce that. You know, being John Malkovich, which I think you could say, if if we're going to have the two halves of this movie, the first mm -hmm. half Charlie wrote John Malkovich. Like, I don't. There's right. not that the second half Charlie totally wrote Human Nature. Human Nature. Okay. Uh, it's it's not even a slight question. It ends with uh, a, a a murder 
in the forest after a bunch of people fuck each other and there's betrayals. Like it's Is it it's, a Tim Robbins movie? It is. It wow, is. and he's so great too. And yeah. it's that bad. Oh God. It's, well, it's it's really bad. Um and it's and it's this weird hyper cerebral ending. They even end with like an Occam quote that makes absolutely no sense in context of the film whatsoever. It's really and it's not strange. the razor. No, no. Um, if you're going to go uh, Occam, come on. No, um, it's, it's, it doesn't even matter. Like it's fine. It's, it's fine. It's garbage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to me, it's, it's a very specific kind of garbage. It's Donald garbage. Um, because it has all of these extra things that were added in that are fairly extraneous that aren't really necessary to the plot. And there is a, a closure or an, like a moment at the end, a, a denouement, I think is how Daniel. Yeah. yeah the mispronounce. Yeah. They yeah, have like the denouement. That way. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> very super tropey. And so it feels yeah. like since this was being written alongside those others, because it was, mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about kind of this shift he was experiencing. And in the movie, he talks about, Hey, early Charlie and then written by Daniel and then uh, Donald. And then at the end, Donald fucking dies and Charlie has to figure out who he is, but he goes on to do, you know, a, a few other films that I would say are less the uh, Donald uh, from mm. here. That'd be eternal sun, sunshine. I mean, as well as he doesn't do anything else that has the violence and sex again. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, he does that. Um, uh... And I think he he's, he feels more emboldened as he gets more successful to make things like Synecdoche and uh, Melissa, just because he, he's now in directorial he chair and controlling. Yeah. Um, I have a different interpretation. I do agree with I, Mike. I do agree with yours in the sense that I think that that's what he's saying with that moment. I think that's that that's the most generous you can give him at that. But I think that I don't think Kaufman slips here, but I think that Kaufman one of my problems with a lot of his other films, I don't really have it with this film because I think he addresses it head on. And I think that that's like the strongest thing you can do as a writer is really address like, even, all right, if we're going to talk about your insecurities for real, finally, Charlie Kaufman, because that's all I wanted to talk to you about since I've seen you making your films is like, why do you think you're that way then? You know, like, mm -hmm. why do you think that that is a problem? Why do you think that that is, you are a victim, you know, like these are questions now that I have, uh, and it's the nature of the self-reflexive types of films that he makes and writes or what you were kind of calling the mumblecore, which is more of like a, you know, like an examination of like the result of like what he wants to talk to talk about. And I think there's a crucial moment that we kind of referenced earlier, which is that twice in the screenplays, there's someone who like kind of gives up on something that they actually were obsessed with or that that, that was like their reason for living like I think for Kaufman, the writer, like in here, LaRoche is saying fuck fish or Susan's I'm done with orchid flowers mm -hmm. is saying that he's done with the search for the great American Screenplay. movie script or whatever. Or trying because, to find the perfect truth because or whatever. Like Kaufman, because he's making it, he's making it, uh, you know, like basic, basically all, right all out of reality. He sought out to create something that was what he's like, I want to grow as a writer. I want to do something simple. How amazing flowers are. Are they amazing? I don't know. I think they are. He doesn't know why he wants it to be, 
grandiose and involved four billion and forty years ago and Darwin and adaptation. He doesn't he doesn't care about the story that he's adapting. He cares about this like egotistical devotion to him being great. The idea of being art. A real artist. Yeah, and yeah. he's a real artist. Yeah. And that's what the movie is kind of telling me. Though you're right, Kaufman went on to make things like Eternal, Sh- uh, Eternal uh, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and other films that I'd say consistently do the thing where he like writes himself into the narrative, which I think all writers do to some extent. So there's a lot of caveats flying around. But my main point being that I think that there is a this is the only time I think in his entire career that Charlie Kaufman is standing at a precipice and he, I think he fucks it. Like, I don't think that the movie fucks it. I think that the movie is totally right. (laughs) He did the movie correctly. Wait, fucks bad? I think... I think that yeah, if oh. he, he, yeah. Oh, you meant like I he think fucks Charlie it Kaufman fucks the no, crevice. <laughs> uh, no, I think Charlie Kaufman as a human being, I think he might have an issue with this. I think that he still is writing movies that are egotistical and self-serving, as opposed to true. You think he's still trying too hard to be a real artist? I think so, and, his, and I think his that's his true insecurity of what that would mean. And find yeah, that. and this is the f- and this is the film that he addresses it, and that's but why I love it. So I think much. I have that. I have that egotism or I have that drive as well because I like it the harder he goes. Like adaptation, I do think is a masterpiece, but it's still not my favorite. My favorite synecdoche because that's like that's even harder <laughs> version. Yeah, that's even harder version of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is because it's just like yeah, it's and so it, challenging. It's like fuck the you. Only try real, and enjoy this. And I love. And the it. only real difference between like to me, the reason I'm drawing a parallel, and it, you know, if if you're humoring me. I think with the later films, it's just largely metaphorical. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Synecdoche is essentially Charlie Kaufman in char- in adaptation playing Charlie Kaufman. But this is the only time that he actually says, like, it's says literally it me. Yeah. It me. Yeah. Like, it's, it's different. But it, his characters always are written from point of view of, like, they have my insecurities. They have well, my issues with, like, the way well, the world I, works. I, I, Next, we'll probably get to, I'm thinking of ending things, but I think that one de- for, deters a little. I don't know if that's a stand-in for Charlie Kaufman, the Jesse Plains right, okay. character per se. Go ahead, Brooks. All right. So for me, I, I would add, uh, I have some disagreements. There. I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. The Another underlying sort of thread throughout this is he's writing his own version of Flowers for Algernon. Um, it's referenced a number of right. times that yeah. is, is this, so mm. is the story like flowers for Algernon? That's a good story about like, it's about flowers. It's, yeah. it's, it's no, a it's funny not. joke, it's a but ah. I mean, yeah. the main character of flowers for Algernon is Charlie who is, uh, dumb and mm-hmm. can't fit in and has his buddy who's, who's, who's great Algernon, uh, eventually, uh, they end up going out. Algernon starts falling apart and Charlie doesn't want this world anymore and he steps back from it hard not mm-hmm. to draw some kind of you know parallels there yeah yeah it's i i absolutely agree because of like if you just bear it down to its liet motif story-wise it's like these moving objects and yeah that that is the heart of it like the two uh the two entities at the end one leaving one staying it's much like in this film the killing of the self by the killing of donald kaufman um i see those parallels yeah and it's um yeah, but it's like, once again, you have to just get, I keep coming back with the question of like, okay, okay, so if we're doing this metaphor about the killing of the self, and you're killing the part of yourself that has so far in the story represented um, kind of like the, 
the dumber version, you know, like you, you earlier in the film, uh, Charlie says of Donald, like, I can't believe we come from the same DNA. Like, no, that's so stupid. And we laugh as the audience at his, you know, just foibles. But like uh, when it comes down to it, what is the killing of Donald? do the killing it's, of donald the, stops specifically the killing of donald stops there from being a satisfying ending which is like one of the things that he makes fun of donald for that they make a big deal out of and to me if we talk about like charlie kaufman through his career i think i made the comment that this this traces back charlie's like first bit of writing that the world ever saw was an episode of get a life uh if you haven't watched it it's fucking amazing that it came out when it did it's like the it launched a ton of careers. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, Chris Elliott, uh, Bob Odenkirk was on it, and Kaufman yeah, really wrote good. a couple. And the episode Kaufman wrote specifically is uh, the whole sitcom itself was crazy and a bit sort of intended to be like an anti-sitcom. But his episode mm. ends with uh, he Chris Elliott gets taken hostage by a pen pal who he's in love with. He ends up getting shot a dozen times. His friend's wife gets arrested for the murders. And... He says out loud, I'm just glad everything wrapped up and ended up for the best. And then he dies on the ground of his bullet wounds. Um, <laughs> that That is, that's the first like public writing of Kaufman that like got produced mm -hmm. as far as like uh, the world knows. This, this mentality of trying to break out of those tropes and find his own voice has been something that is from the beginning. And here we are at this film where it is about Charlie. Hello, Charlie. Is that you? Uh, is this you, Charlie, who are like this question of who he is? And it ends with, again, the death. But instead of the denouement or these great moments that close it off and how it needs to have these grand moments, which is, again, in to go back into McKee's uh, commandments. Yeah. Instead, it's this open ended sort of deeply unsatisfying thing where he kind of ultimately synthesizes the two because it ends with him having a kiss and he goes after the girl finally but then please explain to me the flowers and everything else like there's a there's an unsatisfaction at the end that i really think is uh, becomes more or less kaufman's sort of outstanding play through the rest of his films so you're saying that the ending was unsatisfying to you because it's an incomplete metaphor because it, it or it, it didn't complete or add meaning to any of the things that happened Everything is ultimately what just right. about okay. him. Yeah. So like there's a million in terms loose of the ends. Denouement, the idea that it ends with hope, there's no justification for the hope. Yeah. It, it just it's it doesn't drive back. Um, why is Charlie kiss her? Uh, to, one of the things that he keeps harping on Donald about and we see happen a lot is mm -hmm. uh, why is this happening in the world? And he he again, Donald's answers are always fucking amazing. But. When we write and you go, oh, I've got this great idea. What if this happens? Well, why is that? How does that work in your world? And you essentially have to like retro go go in retrospect and change everything in the story in order to fit that. And that's kind of what we see happen over and over, especially the structure of how it's written. We hear where they need to get to, and then we watch in the script as they justify it. Uh, yeah. The Donald goes, oh, they're totally fucking. He he she's fucking Laroche. She's having an affair. She's lying. And mm -hmm. then we see them go and find justification for it when there, there isn't any in the real world. All of it's completely made right. up from that moment on. It's all lies. Like not that the movie's like filled with truth, but like as far as uh, an actual adaptation or the literal story that never happened. This never happened with LaRoche. They never, they, they never came upon 
Indian tribesmen snorting green cocaine made from ghost lilies and then did it themselves. No. And like, it's wild. And it's from there, it's, it's Donald's sort of bullshit trying to justify how this affair came to be. Because again, that's, it shows after that in retrospect, we don't see it happen organically. Mm-hmm. So there's this constant process of, here is the thing that we need to have happen. Cool. Here's the stuff that justifies it over and over and over. But we never see that with with Charlie and the kiss, because it's one of the things we that happens the first. He, he, yeah, it feels un. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I could agree that it feels unearned in that that's not what the story's about. But he does do work early, saying that he is in love with her. He's very clearly in love with her, and she's very clearly in love with him. Yeah. Um, but so why? It's not, like why? But he didn't do it before. So what changed? Why love? Like, no, no. Why, ran, why did like, he kiss her? Why did he say? Oh, to her? because I, th- I thought it was very clearly that he's accepting the message that his brother has. That love, you couldn't take it away from me. He wanted something that he couldn't be taken away from. Couldn't be taken away from him. And part of that is trying to get over his insecurities. He's very self-aware in the movie of what his problems are, but he continuously goes down like the rabbit hole of say like like hating himself and that self-loathing that kind of is feeded by his egotism which you know feeds his self-loathing which feeds his egotism like it, it that he's breaking that cycle a little bit and that's why i think charlie kaufman the author like i'm disappointed for a different reason doesn't actually agree with that sentiment or rather i i mean the real answer and the answer that i like the best is that charlie kaufman's over here going like look buddy i need money and i need a life i like cars i like having a house i'm good at writing this type of story so i'm going to continue to write it but if you were true to the word of my interpretation of this movie he's not learning his own screenplay's lesson but he's aware of it which is fine you know i do think that this movie is a spectacular testament i think he might have accomplished the best meta narrative film ever created and in the that most regard complexly self-referential without falling yes, apart for yes. sure yeah it for sure in the way that like only a, a, a screenplay about screenplays can you know be. what's interesting is uh for fake is pretty good though <laughs> that's <laughs> but, true yeah. i was watching this with my mom who'd never seen it and her takeaway at the end was i bet he's really good at chess <laughs> and i was like i know oh. what you mean uh yeah, it's very strategically very deep ahead of the, because when we yeah, when people who put together stories try to break a story for an episode of a show mm-hmm. or a screenplay like we have strategies and we employ structural strategies. If you can if you think of it that way as strategies, right. his strategies are like fractally complex. Knot. Yeah, yeah. Such, he plays deep strategy. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's knots on knots on knots. The, um, the amount of plan payoff will be like this knot, this scene here, it pays off in seven different ways, depending on which drama you're tracking at the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. And I think all three of us agree that he is. The writing is also stellar. Yes. Like in terms of like the the page to page, like 
the cleverness of the concepts are one thing, and that is writing. And but the I'm jokes are very funny. Like, yeah, but, and, and I'd, I'd say it's... And structurally, he's all over the place in this one, but like, I think we give him a pass because he's literally talking about that. But he's, he's uh, talking, yeah, like, no, the point is that he's all writing over the place. Writing humans, he's good at writing like, oh, I believe that's a human. Mm-hmm. You know, I may like them or dislike them, but that is a very fully formed human character that, you know, uh, Nicolas Cage plays really well. Oh, it's also film. just it's a delight to see... Maybe Nicolas Cage's best roles. Oh, I, I, yeah, I would Chris easily Cooper say it's probably one, one of my favorites of his. Like, yeah. easily. Mm-hmm. It, he's so incredible yeah. in it as both brothers. And at no point does he, like, Nick Cage out. Like, it's it's mm-hmm. very it's very reserved no. and pretty incredible. And distinctive nuance between the two brothers. Yeah. Like, very, like, I mean, we're seeing a return to, like, a more, uh, you know, the way I would approach it would, or like worksman like or craftsman like, like just doing the acting work. Uh, it's funny because as we're talking about this, there was recently on Twitter, Brian Cox had a whole. Um, he was in. The, he was on Twitter. He tore <laughs> tore some he, other he celebrities' new assholes or whatever. Yeah, and he and he, it's because he's. I think Brian Cox is up his ass a little bit. Uh, I think he's right, and I love this. I love it anytime anyone's like dragging other people, but like he's basically saying, like, look, it's just acting, and you do the job, and you do the work, and you just you, you do what they teach you, and anything else is superfluous. And I think that uh, if you look at the entire career of Nicolas Cage, uh, he absolutely is that type of guy. He's just like, what's the project? Okay, I understand this project. I'm gonna apply the thing that I think is the best thing for this. And that's all he does. He's actually like, to me, that's what an actor should be. There shouldn't be any ego in it. It should just be like, I am a vessel. Uh, use me. Oh, you like that? I can scream really loud. I'm going to do a bunch of those movies. Why? Because money, <laughs> once again, it all comes back to just like, they're just, this is a job. Uh, but anyway, uh, I do think that, I do think that Kaufman is, I think we kind of do agree that, there is a a fundamental kind of hypocrisy about the ending of the film, despite the fact that it is perfect to be uh, if if it's perfect that the ending be hypocritical is what is up to your interpretation. Like as the viewer, you, you take it or leave it. You like it or you don't. Um, but he's definitely successful in my interpretation of trying to talk about himself as the writer and at the same time, trying to tell the story and trying to adapt to work. I think he does both. Well, so yeah, the- by the end, he's like, it's as if he started a big lofty speech about art and then said, but, you know, you got to eat or whatever, like do whatever you got to do. Fuck it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's almost the nutshell of the emotional arc of the film. Yeah. And I think. I don't know if he's genuine is my problem because he's trying I do to believe appeal to genuine. our honesty. It seems consistent over the course of his career. It feels genuine to me. Yeah. It also, you just made me realize that I'm thinking of ending things would also be an adaptation of Flowers for Algernon if Charlie just didn't get the surgery. <laughs> he's just a sad janitor <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I have I'm ask- fascinated by that Flowers for Algernon connection because that didn't fully occur to me. And now I'm like re-going over that and mining all the connections. So God adaptation a, pays out. Real question. Um, it does pay out. Is is there a Donald in this movie? And I mean that because it's one of the things that uh, are you bringing up like the identity thing, like the the identity problem. Like so, also no. Is you it might is it Fight Club? That, is it Fight Club? 
That there is no Donald. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like the yeah. movie in 2003, I think, Identity. Identity and then there's another movie oh, yeah. that also is called Three. It's on the Wikipedia. Two films were created out of the thing that Kaufman in this script says like, oh, that's trash. Mm-hmm. And only like uh, like a stereotypical Hollywood guy would like that. And like we literally see Ron Livingston going like, this is awesome. Dude. <laughs> you know, like this is Mom awesome. Mom called it emotionally taught. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and actually it was, like in one case it's even sadder because if you guys look into three someone wrote a book about it like they watched this movie wrote a book about it and then that got made into a screenplay it's like life imitating art in a beautiful way well i mean at this time he was hired to write uh confessions of a dangerous mind which is Mm -hmm. far more mainstream as a thing far more mainstream and And doesn't have so if we're talking about like well he's writing this he's writing this other thing is this trash is there in this film there is no Donald. It is all Charlie. And he's going back mm. and forth and kind of oscillating these core personalities. And ultimately, again, the ending of the death, there there never was a Donald in this world. It The, the comment early on, how are you going to do it with I... trick photography? Yeah, well, how do you explain in the... And he starts saying, well, they're at the set where Donald would be basically breaking the rules of the universe. He's making commentary on the fact that they're breaking the rules of the universe by having someone who doesn't right. exist. Doesn't uh, Donald come to a party with a girl, though? Yeah, he gets calls and they're like, Catherine Keener's in my house. Like, there's scenes where he's doing stuff outside of what but is he could imagine Catherine Keener on the other end of the phone. Yeah, but I, you, I could you, imagine. You don't sure. assume that that's. I'd have to rewatch it, wondering. I think literally I don't know. Wonder, counting I don't know. Fight Club rules, you know, like I'd have this to watch is, it through that lens. Yeah, it's. I think it's fine, like mental masturbation, but it doesn't matter though. Like, no, because we all either way, Donald represents is, a facet of his personality. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, either way. Uh, but I do like that because I do. I am going through the scenes in the movie and I'm thinking, like, does he actually like could that movie also be like did Charlie Kaufman actually go out of his way to do that as well? And you might be right about that. But uh, I don't know. It just seems like lo- it just seems not uh, like, I don't know. It just seems like it's not something that is super important in the narrative to me. Uh, in the way that the other metaphorical elements are, um, there's just stuff that's, there's so much other stuff going on. Um, but that's really funny. We are really, really funny. Oh, (laughs) I wasn't talking about you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's your first mistake. Oh no. Uh, yeah, I, um, what else? There's so much, but, um, I shot my hour on Mindwad. But, yeah, me to uh, let too. me know if people have big yearning passions that they have yet to unspool. Oh, you know what's something that I thought was a really nice touch, just a small little thing, is that despite the fact that like LaRoche and Kaufman are like in thesis and antithesis in terms of like character studies, he both made them crippled by their insecurities. There's like they're also both arrogant. They're confident that they're best, the best at what they do, and they tell everyone about it all the time. I love that John, uh, Chris Cooper, who plays John LaRoche, comes in early and hot uh, with some of his insecurities. When uh, uh, Susan uh, Orlean, a.k.a. Meryl Streep, gets into his car, uh, car for the first time, he says, I want you to know that this fan is a piece of shit. But once I hit the jackpot, I'm going to buy an awesome car. (laughs) 
<laughs> like it's he's so well he's so the, the line he says the line he says that's amazing is uh i'm the smartest person i know i know yeah, i'm the exactly. smartest person i've ever met that's I've ever actually met. That's right. a line from his life like that's a real line he says Right, right. But it's just so funny to me that he, that Kaufman, the author, chose to make Kaufman, the character, and LaRoche so similar, even though they're so, like, their personalities are as different as it gets. They both have the same, like, flaws. Um, and I thought that that was interesting considering uh, how the relationship of, like, putting someone on a pedestal and admiring them, much akin to a flower, or looking down on someone later and being disappointed by them. Um, everyone's kind of fulfilling that role in the story. E you know, even the concept of adaptation, you know, is playing, is an, is a character there. Cause the people are, you know, dissatisfied with the adaptation. I, like that might be the greatest that might be the greatest trick that Coffin's playing here is that by giving us as unsatisfying ending, he's also proving, about the movie that if you're looking for something larger, there is nothing to be there other than what you make of it. And so what you make of it is things like, what if, you know, if you rewatch the screen, if you rewatch the movie, is there a Donald? <laughs> like that, mm -hmm. that might be what uh, Kaufman has done for us is told, made this podcast. Like he, if he listens to this and he's like, yeah, these idiots. <laughs> well, and it's one of the things he does with the drugs specifically, which I think um, a, a lot of this film, uh, as I was rewatching it, kept calling me back to, I don't know if you ever saw Rubber, which is... Um, the Killer uh, Tire, of The course. Killer Tire. Um, it's it's one of my favorite films, um, of course, because I like the stupid weird shit. But mm. the, the core sort of uh, setup when Quentin Depew uh, made it was it was a response to what he was dealing with in Hollywood and a big fuck you to kind of everyone in the space as he was making stuff and mocking the idea of the audience. And Rubber literally puts the audience in the theater, in the movie, and mm -hmm. it just mm -hmm. could not hate them more, like could not have more uh, sort of contempt for them. In this, as we start getting through Donald's world, specifically what the, the, the ghost orchid powder does, the drug, is it makes everyone find the most mundane garbage wonderful and fascinating. Fascinating, yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but think that was also a sort of critique on, you know, just the, the nature of, hey, look, here's this. Because the, the rest of the movie is, oh, we're going to follow him. Oh, we're peeping on him having sex. Oh, now they're going to murder him mm -hmm. and they get eaten. Like, it's garbage. It's not interesting. There's yeah. no, but it's, but we're there and we're following it and we're into it. And Well, and especially because he kind of cheats because even though the events are garbage, their lines that are coming out of their mouths are not garbage. They're good lines. No, they're lines. so good. Yeah. They're good lines. Yeah, I agree. No, the writing is they... exceptional for it. But specifically, like, the, the arc <sighs> oh, is man. so pointless what happens. and yet... Quite intentionally so, yeah. Yeah, and but everyone's There's, got the stroke. Yeah, I don't. I can't think of a more like like it's kind of ineffable like how good Meryl Streep is because he, there's things that you can like go like that was a good line reading or you can go like oh that's a good instinct, but there's just something uh, that like I can't explain that is like her talking about the dial tone like the whole sequence where she is when she lays on, on her back drugs. and looks at her feet and the way her eyes mm -hmm. are open wide was shockingly subtle brilliant 
Like I, yeah, the dial tones admiring the ants, um, just that whole segment where it's just this simplistic rote love story. She's incredible. That you know, like she's so she's like I just remember that stuff. Like when I think, like it's just one of those performances that you just go like that. I've never seen that before, and like now it's locked in as like a a trope. I don't know why she's capable of that kind of stuff, but she always is. No, she's one of those uh, one of those actors who you go, oh, it's well, it's Meryl Streep. Like, she's just fucking wonderful. Right. And it's just like, once again, cliches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Water's wet. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. yeah but I, I also love that I can say that uh, the subtleties of a Nick Cage performance, that, that, that you can say that during this, I think is kind of amazing, mm. too. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Never liked Streep. At uh, the premiere of the premiere of Man. I know. I can't even imagine someone actually harboring that opinion. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I said it almost to in jest, test yeah. it out loud. Yeah, Just to test that it. Would yeah, like it didn't weird. feel good as soon wrong. as I said it. At, at, yeah. at uh, the premiere of Mandy, I bet she's got at the premiere of Mandy. Manos, Panos Cosmatos talked about uh, Nick Cage. Someone asked because uh, Nick Cage was in Mandy, and he does a lot. We'll say there's a significant range of performances, but sure, someone yeah. was like, "How how was it like working?" And and Panos said, and I think it's it's pretty clear that's the case um, that. With the right director, Nick is uh, ready to do kind of whatever it takes and that he mm-hmm. really just needs the right director. And Nick sitting next to him in the most god awful gold spray painted leather pants. It was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, said, no, it's very important to me that I'd be part like in, to him. It's the artistic process and the way he was talking about it. He's it's about the director spending the time and about the the ideas behind it. And I can only imagine what it was like on set with him with this. Like I genuinely, it's probably my favorite performance up until pig. I, I don't know if you've seen pig, but it's fucking amazing. Yeah, I, like yeah, I just pig. saw pig. Uh, yeah. I still think adaptation beats it performance wise. Raising right. Arizona also would be in the running. Yeah, that's, yeah. Of sets Mm-mm. I want to be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that once again, that workman, like, like you just a cartoon. There's something about, like disappearing like, into right, the role of cartoon I'll give you that, boss. where you're just yeah. like i'll do that yeah uh that i just love and then when charlie uh, goffman's like you're that. pathetic but in a grounded way that's realistic don't go full nick cage he goes okay yeah don't try to ploy yep. for nick cage is, has admirable workman he's like yes instincts. he's very good yes <laughs> in fact on discord he's brooks's icon he is it's literal true. icon because uh, when I was growing uh, up, everyone said I looked like him. So picture. I went as on Halloween. Uh, I went for a few different movies. Uh, it could happen to you. I dressed up as the cop with the lottery ticket. Interesting. Mm. It was an ongoing stupid joke. Quite a the Donald on our hands. <laughs> Would be uh, easy. But, oh, yeah. That wasn't just a cash in at all. No. <laughs> hey, man, you got uh, tax receipts you got to take care of. Um, you got to buy a big any final in New Orleans. You heard Any about that? Final thoughts? Yeah, you hear about this? Nick Cage no, you want to, is yeah, going to be buried in a giant pyramid in New Orleans. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. Okay. Tomb. Just so people yeah. know. Just so people know, we can all visit it later the and Nick like Cage I don't know, tomb. do cool stuff. Like I don't know, like the Nick sit Cage on pyramid. It and talk about whatever we want. It's mm-hmm. it's the only rocks. only person on earth where you hear that and you go, yeah, okay, I buy that. That makes sense. There's several peoples I can imagine having it too in New Orleans, but that just says more about no, me. No, but specifically Any... a giant pyramid. His is going to be oh, a it... huge pyramid, four times yeah. the size of an average tomb. Yeah. Uh, uh, who else? If you have money, you can do. I that I could kind of see stuff. Streep getting a sphinx. 
I could see Billy Bob Thornton literally doing the same thing as pyramid. Nicolas Cage. Yeah. yeah. He gets a slightly larger pyramid right next to it. You mm-hmm. can see that. There's a lot of people. All right. But uh, yeah, any final thoughts on adaptation? Anything? Um, I, I just want to say that I, I love this movie. I love it too. Um, yeah, I do love it too. I think that it's the one... I usually come down pretty hard on Kaufman personally because I don't like the style mostly that it's usually style notes, which is, you know, not exactly what he's going for. He's usually going for something that's deeper. And I, uh, sometimes find that he's self aggrandizing and soft, soft, or cystic, Solipsistic. but, um, solipsistic. Yeah. But he, um, this one, I think because he addresses it so head on, it's, uh, it works for me. So that's my takeaway. Um, Brooks, I want to thank you for oh, no. engaging us in this I, wonderful conversation. I'd love to. It's it's one of the the interesting thing about this film, and it's the last time he did this, and maybe the only time, is it's to me the most accessible Kaufman because I think it's the most successful mm-hmm. in terms of trying to, you know, I a writer coming through a film. I don't think that's a thing mm-hmm. that that happens. I think writers get lost in the milieu of what a film is in the writing process, and the as you guys were saying earlier, the meta of this is to me the most successful of any movie in the way that I can recommend this to people who don't know Kaufman or aren't super into film and they'll come out the other side just confused enough, but really like it because it is genuinely a good film. It's in the top three, but I do think, I think, uh, Oh, it's not for me. For me, it's not not my top three Kaufman movies. No, I mean, accessibility wise for broad audiences. I think eternal sunshine is probably the broadest because it's just breakups are sad and, memory mm-hmm. sci-fi mm-hmm. memory game everyone oh, cool. can relate yeah. to that <laughs> yeah exactly i think that's true i think i think jones has something on gondry but that's for yeah, but i would say this this one hits the balance i think it, again I, I agree internal sunshine's way this is more. the most accessible smart one <laughs> it's it's the balance yeah. it's the the pyramid yeah. because if you go further on the other side of that sort of axis where you hit the uh i'm i'm thinking of ending things or anomalies uh, you have to be someone like uh, nothing against you. You have to be someone like me and Mike to like it. Who who's, you have to really want it. We've already stepped through onto that and we're ready for it. But if you're not already there, it's not going to bring you over to the side. Like, yeah, yeah. This- you have to devalue the director. That's all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey man, do, is there any, um, is there any uh, place on the internet you want to point us to or plugs you want to make for yourself? Yeah. If you, uh, if any of you want to learn more about a couple of things I mentioned, I, I brought up to lose lightly. Uh, I do want to just mention because it's uh, one of the things I couldn't help. I'm but almost done. Just give me to. a few um, seconds, please. In, uh, Thousand Plateaus and Anti-Oedipus, Deleuze and Guattari go significantly over this concept of the orchid and the wasp. This would be, if I have a final point, this would be it. Um, they talk about the orchid and the wasp because when Darwin brought it up, or as it's discussed in the book from the quote, one of the difficulties about all of this is talking about which one is, we'll say, the primary. Is the wasp attaching itself to the orchid, or is the orchid attaching itself to the wasp? In doing so, we create a hierarchy and a setup that one is signifying the other. Uh, their big point is that at any moment, as the wasp and the orchid pseudo-copulate, uh, as the bee hits the, the flower, at any moment, the bee is becoming more like the wasp, but at the same time, the Jen, wasp please, is becoming more like the bee. stop fucking with it. Give me a second. And in these moments, we actually get this moment where we have increased meaning, the growth of things, as, as the quote goes, a becoming wasp of the orchid and a becoming orchid of the wasp. 
There's neither imitation nor resemblance, only an explosion of two heterogeneous series on the line of flight composed by this common reality. And I've always loved that phrasing. And it's one of the things that really, when I was going through this and when I watched this the first time, it's always been something that stuck with me. If you want to know more about Deleuze, if you want to know more about Guattari and the other writings, uh, feel free to search the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. We're on all kinds of podcasting, and we do a Discord reading group to teach everyone about uh, the philosophies surrounding that. So thank you guys for having me on. It's always an amazing pleasure. Yeah, it's great, it's one of my favorite highlights of my uh, my week or my month when I do it. Oh, that's that's spectacular. Well, uh, well thank you for being here. We got to do uh, Thinking of Ending Things soon. Oh, my God, yes. I'd love that. And Abe can go a, a, back a, a, to shitting on the movie. Yes. I know he's not a fan of that one. No, not at all. I, Yeah, it's fine. It, Everything's fine. But you guys. like Clemens. We're, we're just here. Yeah. We'll take Clemens that, and make Clemens. That doesn't change. That doesn't change the meaning of the movie, but whatever. <laughs> this is fine. That's that podcast. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, we've made the magnificent, the mundane magnificent, and we've made the magnificent mundane again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Until next time, we've been the Frame Raiders. Pew, 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 pew. (laughs) This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!